0: Welcome to Near Death Experience podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of *Life in the Spirit World*: What Near Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. Today, we're going to share a couple, maybe three experiences. Two of which are, um, well, all three of which are rather short, but. Uh, But I think between them, we can get some pretty cool stuff out of them. Okay, this is from Wayne on enderf.org, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. Wayne says, I was traveling home from work in the fog in a car driven by my workmate, Mark. I was sitting in the back seat of the car without a seatbelt when a car appeared out of the fog and struck us head on. I was thrown violently through the car and impacted the door, which burst open, and I landed on the road face down. It all happened in slow motion, and I do not remember any pain at the time. I remember feeling the ice-cold stones on the road sticking to my face, and I remember just standing up and immediately thinking, what a wonderful feeling of no cold air, and the temperature was exactly the same as my body. I remember looking down because I couldn't feel the road beneath my feet, and yet I was standing there. I looked at the body face down and did not know that it was me. I had no fear or concern about this person, and yet I was starting to wonder what was going on as people were running around a car accident. I tried to ask a person if there was anyone hurt, and they ignored me. They placed a blanket completely over the body on the road. I remember wondering why I had a droopy sort of monk shirt on. As I walked forward, I moved through the car body in front of me. I wondered that something was very peculiar about what I had just done, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I then felt a magnetic drawing on my face and had no power to stop it dragging me into the body under the blanket. I felt sudden pain as the road stuck to my bleeding face was so cold. I again stood up and this time asked about the person under the blanket. Again, no one was seeing or hearing me, and I was now becoming frightened. I walked without feeling the road over to the person lying in the grass at the side of the road. It was Mark, and I was asking if he was all right. I looked around and saw the Morris steering wheel lying down in the bankment. A voice from my next-door neighbor, who was still alive at the time, was in my right ear. He said, do not look at the light. I could feel what I thought was the sun behind me, but knew instinctively not to look at it. The pull of the light was great at that time the same old magnetic pull on my face and upper body was throwing me back into the person under the blanket again the pain and cold from the reality of the road at this time i heard the voice saying he's not dead take the blanket off him i was put into the ambulance and a couple of after a couple of days i was considered medically all okay but very bruised i saw mark in the hospital and we talked about what had happened. He said that they cleaned up the wreck but could not find the steering wheel that had ripped off on impact. I told him where it was lying, and he laughed, saying that he heard that I was thought to be dead and covered up. I then told him my story and later went back to the crash site, and I went straight to the place where the steering wheel was. It was there. That is the end of Wayne's experience, a classic uh, veridical experience, an experience where it was verified to the individual that what they experienced was not just a hallucination and so forth. In his traumatic accident, there's no way he could have known what happened to the steering wheel, uh, but later ended up finding it. And though that's very valuable and, and you know, something that acts as a sort of evidence of his out-of-body experience, it's not the thing that stands out most to me. There's a few things in here that I find particularly interesting. First off, it appears to me that there is no blip in consciousness from his perspective. The accident happens, he's thrown from the car, like thrown against the... uh door of the car, which slams open, and he goes flying out, okay, which probably actually saved his life now that now that I'm seeing it from this perspective. And, and apparently his friend was thrown from it also. Obviously, the ideal is to be in a seatbelt, but um, aside from that, if you don't have a seatbelt, being thrown from the vehicle is probably your best chance in this kind of a setting. Anyway, um, I find it interesting that he doesn't lose consciousness or there's no blip in his consciousness but he does find himself he says it happens and it's as if it happened in slow motion he doesn't remember any pain at the time he says i remember feeling the ice cold stones on the road sticking to my face and i remember just standing up and immediately thinking what a wonderful feeling of no cold air and the temperature was the exact same as my body He even looks down because he doesn't feel the road beneath his feet, yet he should. I'm under the impression that it's a rather cold day from his description of how cold it should have felt. And even the feeling of the cold stones stuck to his face, um, which even that seems to imply to me that his face was probably torn up pretty good because it would be the blood against his face that would create the, um, that cold vacuum sort of effect that would make the cold rocks stick to his face and, uh, and the road itself. And he feels that for a moment, but then he gets up and he's fine. I get the impression that he doesn't realize that he has just been in an accident but he gets up off the road, and he's kind of there and thinking, oh, what's what's going on? Which is interesting, because though there is no blip in the consciousness, there is somewhat of a blip in the memory, or at least the lucidness of the immediate memory. And I don't know how much of this is, because, you know, he's just driving down the road, and perhaps the moment of the beginning of the accident, his Mind may have covered up or hidden that memory, as it often does. Anybody who's had a serious uh, concussion or anything knows that it's it's rare to remember much of anything from the time of the impact or even just prior until waking up in more conscious <laughs> wakefulness, and sometimes there's even non-conscious wakefulness where there's, you know, what just happened? And then five minutes later, what just happened? Five minutes later, what just happened? There's a little bit of a loop of consciousness for a short time. But anyway, when they talk about this, about that kind of experience later, they look back and there's no memory of what happened. They say, I remember riding in the car and nothing after that. I just remember waking up in the hospital and feeling like I'd been asleep for a while or something. And uh, that is fairly characteristic of that kind of a thing. But uh, it, it kind of makes me think that uh, perhaps that's what happened. And maybe his, his consciousness shuts out the memory of the accident for a time, except that he remembers slamming against the door. So I'm not sure how that works. He knows he's in a car accident, but he's describing the car accident while he's walking around it as you know, he's wondering what's going on as people were running around a car accident. He doesn't say the car accident or the accident I'd been in. Somehow he is detached from the accident, which is interesting. He also is apparently quite detached from the body because he sees this body. And interestingly enough, he's. it doesn't occur to him to wonder, is this person okay? But rather he says, Um, that uh, he went to ask if there was anyone hurt after seeing this body laying there on the ground, which is clearly hurt. So I don't know what's going on with his logical thinking, I guess you might say, or something. And yet he sees his friend, and he goes to ask someone, is he all right? Is Mark okay? And um, so he seems aware that Mark... His body seems to be in danger, but his own body he doesn't really connect with. There's something i don't I don't know what it is about that that strikes me as both odd and interesting because could it be that in the spirit form, the dead body of the individual that you are is no more interesting or of no more um substance to you? Then perhaps a stone might be, or the road itself, that it's just kind of part of the landscape, not really noticeable. In fact, it could be that uh, Wayne's description of seeing this person on the ground, he doesn't, it could be that he didn't really notice it, he saw it, and could give it in the description, but he's you know, it's as if it's part of the landscape, not really noticeable. But his friend Mark, who is a living person, still a body and a soul together, you might say, he takes interest in, in that body. I don't know. What is that? How does that work? I don't know. But it's interesting. He says uh, also that uh, he senses this light, behind him. He senses as if the sun were behind him like a warm blanket inviting him. And there's this pull going on. One pulling him toward the light or or this urge to go toward the light. And yet there's also this pull toward his body. and in, And in an even stranger thing, it happens, he says, he hears the voice of his neighbor, who is still alive at this time, saying, he's not dead. Take the blanket off him. Now, first off, he's a spirit. How's he going to remove the blanket? Second off, why is his friend, who's still alive, the voice that is whispering to him? Now I don't offer it as any kind of uh, speculation on my part, but just as you know, one possible. If you're, if if you're like, okay, that that doesn't work, I you know, and you feel to reject the experience outright because well, that that doesn't make sense, and you know, lest you're ready to um, reject it outright. Let me suggest a couple of possibilities. One, in the spirit form, we have multiple or a capacity for multiple attention. Is it possible that there is part of our attention, just even the smallest aspect? I wouldn't suggest the soul itself, or even um, any part of us that makes up our living life, but could it be that there is a small part of us, somehow, that is still on the other side? I've heard enough to suggest that, and I don't know how that works. I'm certainly not suggesting that Your spirit and body are not here, right here, as I think they are. Everything seems to suggest that. And yet, possibly part of you could still be on the other side. And if that's the case, then perhaps Mark's... I'm sorry, not Mark, um, but this friend, this next-door friend who is still alive, is somehow communicating with him on some level that is obviously unconscious to the neighbor. Another possibility is that there is a spirit speaking to him, you know, a loved one or a guardian angel or whatever, that is speaking to him. And in order to not um, confuse or distract him, he uses a voice that he's familiar with. Now, another possibility is that that um, he has a loved one, perhaps a grandfather, great-grandfather or something, that sounds enough like his neighbor that he would automatically assume that's who his voice it was. I don't know. Some interesting things there, but take comfort in the bits that we learn from this experience. For one, he had no pain at his death. He felt a, a brief moment of the cold ice, cold stones against his face. And then he just gets up and thinks, wow, it's not even cold out here. And so at that point, he is without any physical, mortal sensation. And the physical-like, physical-like feelings that he's having are warm and comfortable, and so forth. So take comfort in the possibility that at the time of death, there may not be any pain. In fact, that seems quite common. Okay, next experience. This is Sandra, also from endurf.org She says, there was the accident. While in the emergency room, I could not be moved to x-ray or given medical medication because, I was later told, they could not get my heart under control. I was a person who believed she had nothing to live for, so death would have been welcomed, although never intentional. As I lay there, I began to feel very light. I felt as if I were floating on clouds not. I looked around and saw what appeared to be a sort of fog. It was the color of storm clouds, you know, some light, some dark, and some soft. I looked down to see my hands, and they weren't there. Then I looked for my body, but it wasn't there either. I was there, but not there. The thing that stood out the most to me at the time was how peaceful it all felt. There was no pain or sorrow, no happiness, no sadness, no tears, no laughter, no hot or cold, no anger, no nothing. I later began to lovingly describe this as a place of nothing. I don't know how long I floated, but it seemed a long time to me. So long that I became antsy At one point, I felt as if I were walking on a balance beam, the kind used in gymnastics, although I never saw it. I slid my feet along it for fear that if I picked up the right foot or the left, somehow it would determine what was to become of me, heaven or hell. Screwy, I know. Finally, I came to the end of the beam and stood there in the fog, looked up toward heaven and cried out, help me, please help me, either bring me back or for pity's sake, let me go, but please don't leave me here. The next thing I saw came quickly, like the next scene in a movie. I was sitting on the floor of a cave. It was pitch black behind me, and the floor was cold and damp, jagged granite. I could hear water trickling down the wall behind me and in front of me there was an opening. I couldn't look directly at it because the light was shining through it so brightly. As I sat there, I looked at the spot where the light faded to to an end. There was a man standing there. He had his hand held out to me and he spoke to me so softly that I really had to listen or I could have missed his words. He said, Come, take my hand. I remember giving a half-hearted attempt at reaching him and realized somehow that I couldn't feel anything from the waist down. He stood about eight feet from where I sat, and I knew I couldn't reach him. So I began to cry and said, I can't reach you. His voice got firmer as he, in more of a demand than a request, repeated, Take my hand. This time I tried as hard as I could to stretch my upper body enough to reach him, but I lost my balance, fell to the floor, and hit my face. Then I began to sob and said, I can't. I can't reach you. You've got to help me. Please help me. Then he said, very calmly, You've got to try. You must never stop trying. The next thing I saw was a series of bright lights passing overhead as I regained consciousness and they were rushing me to x-ray. That is the end of Sandra's experience. Very interesting, isn't it? She describes a fog, a sort of fog, um, like storm clouds with some light, dark and soft. This sounds to me like a very, um, a slightly different rendition of the void. She is clearly there in this void of a place that is just fog, just clouds, as if, you know, storm clouds, dark light, and somewhere in between. And she's not feeling much of anything until she begins to become antsy. And she looks upward toward heaven and says, help me, either bring me back or for pity's sake let me go because don't leave me uh, be, but please don't leave me here and then she finds herself it's it's like the next scene of of the movie it's like the the scene switches but so does the particular uh situation i guess you might say She says it was pitch black behind me the floor was cold and damp that she's on the floor of a cave Now, the tunnel is described in many ways. Um, One of them is a cave. Some people see a cave. Now, that's not to say that to some, the description best matches a cave and that to others it best matches, you know, the eye of a hurricane. I think they're actually seeing different things in terms of, of the physical makeup of it or spiritual makeup, I guess you could say. If you were to draw them, you know, you wouldn't see two different drawings that mildly represent a cave or mildly represent something else. I think they would be very different images, but they all have this common element of a tunnel, a cave, a chasm, a hallway, something where there is is a passageway, and there seems to be significance to that. Anyway, as Sandra is approaching the light beyond this cave, at the mouth of the cave, you might say, that is too bright to even see into. She can see enough to see that there is a person there. Now, she doesn't even attempt, from what I can tell, to identify this individual. Was this a grandparent? Was it God? Was it a guardian angel, guide? We don't know. We can't know. But she does say that this being holds out his hand and says, take my hand. And she kind of tries and she says, I can't. He says, take my hand firmly. And she reaches as best she can. I mean, she says, I tried as hard as I could to stretch my upper body enough to reach it. But she loses balance, falls on the floor and hits her hits in the face. She falls on her face and begins to sob and saying, I can't, I can't reach you. You've got to help me. Please help me. And this, I don't know, there's something in this, something in this that's striking me. He says very calmly, he's not, he's not shouting out in desperation. He says very calmly, you've got to try. You must never stop trying. And she's instantly awake. There's a series of bright lights passing overhead as she regains consciousness as they were rushing her to the x-ray. You've got to try. You must never stop trying. You know, for the other side and how perfect it can be and how beautiful it can be, that is a little bit of an odd message if we're taking it as a literal... And, and it is literal. It's This may be an example of how something can be both real and metaphoric at the same time in the spirit world. There's a strong correlation between the metaphoric and the real. And I don't think that just because something is metaphorical, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not real. She's really seeing this person. She's really in some kind of cave in some spiritual realm, but the situation is laid out such that she is given a really deep, impressive lesson, and she doesn't even seem to expound upon it, Um, and I find that very interesting. Let me, before I go on to describe what I'm getting out of her message, or the message of this uh, messenger... Let me read just a couple of things she mentions in her descriptions in the, uh, in the questions that follow on the website, okay? Um, when asked, were your senses more vivid than usual? She says, incredibly more vivid. Did your vision differ in any way from normal? She says, the fog. I don't know how to describe it, but it was all around me, and the differences and contrast very obvious the light was as bright and hard to look at as different as looking directly into the sun i have in everyday life zero depth perception yet it was clear to me that the man i saw was eight feet in front of me and ten feet from the opening where the light shone through the walls ended approximately three feet behind me and five feet to my right two feet to my left. I am nearsighted, but things were acutely clear, except for the man. I never saw his face, because the light was shining on his back as he faced me. His silhouette was black, the edges of of which were faded from the brightness behind him. I could see nearly the entire circle around him, except directly behind me, where it was the blackest of black of night. Yes, I'd say vision was quite clear. So uh, first off, in case there's any question of of clarity, if this was some foggy imagery or so and so forth, no. But um, when she's asked, did you reach a boundary or limiting physical structure, she says, yes. I consider my boundary being the cave and my inability to reach the hand I so desperately wanted to hold, along with my inability to move from where I sat Or walk into the light. Somehow I believe that if I could have reached that hand, he would have led me through the opening into the light. This would have been eternal happiness. I believe I cried because I was sad that I had to go back and would not be allowed to walk in the light at that time. Now, one more thing she says Did you have a change in your values and beliefs after, or because of your experience? She says, yes. I now believe that faith is within the individual. No one can tell someone how else to pray, someone else how to pray, and what to believe. That's God's job. And I believe he hears each of us because he lives within each of us. I believe in the possibility of reincarnation, karma, the way of the universe. I believe in guardian angels as well as spirits. Many things Have changed for me in that area which drives my parents crazy since they are devout Christians I can no longer agree with them however another one has have your relationships changed specifically because of your experience yes I left my husband I moved 1,500 miles west and now for the first time I have real friends who love me look up to me for guidance and understanding I've made peace with my father after we disowned each other 27 years ago. I have come to know my sons and ve- are very close to them. I know that death is a fact of life and could happen at any time. So I never miss any chance to pass out love, love yous and hugs, and which always takes my mom by surprise. I've got my life's relationships in order and will not be afraid when my time comes knocking again. Okay. Okay. I want to go back to that last little encounter with this being. She's reaching out and she can't seem... At first she tries half-heartedly to reach his hand. Then she tries with all her might. Everything she has. And she only falls on her face. But this being says, You've got to try. You must never stop trying. I don't think he was trying to say... Keep trying so I can reach your hand and we can come on to the other side. I think he was saying, find me. Seek me and never stop seeking me until you find me. I think that's what God expects of us. Not just expects of us, but wants of us. He's not reaching out his hand just so he can say that he did his part. He's reaching out his hand because he wants us with him. He wants us at his side. He longs for us even more than we long for him. And yet he is so respectful and loving of our agency, our ability to choose, that he's not going to force it. He's not going to reach down and pull her to him just because he wants it so badly. He needs her to learn how to reach out and find him. He needs her to put in that effort to never stop trying. And he wants the same from all of us. Never stop seeking God until you find him. Until you have him. Absolutely. Until you are in his arms, in his embrace, and can receive instruction directly from him. In the meantime, you're going to reach for him. You're going to try to seek him. Never stop trying. Never give up on that search. That's what I get out of that. And it's beautiful, isn't it? So thank you, Sandra, for posting that for us. Let me share one very short, uh, more experience. This is also on enderf.org. This is Doris. She says, I was feeling peaceful when an ex-boyfriend arrived and we started really fighting. He started hitting me. I fell down and lost consciousness. I started seeing a light that was very, very white. And many faces, who or many people whose faces I was unable to distinguish. They were all dressed beautifully in clothing like large angels. All of a sudden, a voice told me to go back. It is not your time yet. I came back. I didn't know how to explain this to my girlfriend. She told me she didn't know what to do because she thought I was dead for a long time. I never told her what had happened because I was afraid of being ridiculed. But now I am suffering from anxiety and want what I experienced beyond and what happened to me to be true. That is the end of Doris' experience. I share this simply because... And following the other experience, partly because, you know, we talked about that search, that seeking. As studiers of near-death experiences, you know, and and those of you who have had near-death experiences, they'll probably know what I'm talking about here. Um, But to those of us who haven't had them, we sometimes mistakenly think that If we were to have a near-death experience, have an encounter with God or with angels or light beings or something, it would confirm all of our hopes and dreams, and we would somehow be peaceful about it for the rest of our lives. Not necessarily so. In fact, for many near-death experiencers, that is the experience that starts them on this journey of seeking and searching and trying to find God. Some of them have met him, and then they come back, and then they're just like drawn to seek God. So even those who have these kinds of experiences are seeking, which is to suggest that this life is about seeking, and not just seeking for seeking's sake, but seeking in order to find God, seeking in order to find our truest truest self, seeking not just to find who we were, but who we are capable of becoming. Yes, we should be happy with who we are and what we have become, but we should never be fully satisfied as if to say, I'm enough and I need not grow anymore, because for our spirit, that will never be enough. We have to be growing. We have to be learning. We have to be expanding just because that's who we are. That's why we come in the first place. And perhaps there is some level of need to become content in a loving way with ourselves, as well as with God, at the level that we are at this, uh, you know, where we are on earth, and, and to become content and comfortable with what we are and who we are there's certainly something to be said for that but if we give up on the search just because we're not finding it sufficiently fulfilling i think we've missed the point of the search entirely just knowing that these things are true is not enough we've got to seek god for ourselves seek your own spiritually transformative experiences seek your own connection with God seek your own connection with your deepest truest self and seek that kind of connection with your loved ones as well and when it's appropriate and necessary with strangers and acquaintances there is so much of love to be gained and learned while we are here so much growing to do that it takes a lifetime it takes more than a lifetime but while we are here we're in the best situation to be learning and growing and seeking so don't give up on that search if you would like to support the podcast you can do so by purchasing my book life in the spirit world particularly the audiobook for those of you who are listening podcast listeners you'd probably enjoy audiobook especially. Also, you can go to patreon.com and become an ongoing monthly contributor. If you can't contribute financially, if you simply go to iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave a review, Give, give five stars if you feel that it's worth that. And also, if you can, share something, say something about it, because as much as stars do help in the algorithms that help people to find the podcast see, hearing somebody's personal experience with it or you know in some way that it's touched you or touched someone or maybe given you comfort or whatever you share that and people will see that and it's a personal connection with that individual and it will help them want to listen to the podcast And that helps a lot because we're out to make a difference in the world, John and I. And I hope that the little effort that we make makes a difference for someone somewhere. Because I know for me, it's made a great difference and I feel the love coming from all of you. So thank you so much for that and thank you for listening.